we have Kim Polese, who is here from, uh, is the CEO of Spike Source. She is, uh, has a wonderfully interesting background. Uh, she has a degree in biophysics from UC Berkeley. She also studied computer science. And one of her wonderful claims to fame is that when she was at Sun, she was the original product manager for Java. She then went on to found Marimba and is currently the CEO of SpikeSource. So, without further ado, Kim Palazzi. Thank you, Tina. Uh, delighted to be here this afternoon. Um, and I'm just going to talk from some notes I have and just basically sort of stream of consciousness and then uh, allow plenty of time for Q&A. So uh, what I'd really like to focus on is, you know, based on the 20 years I've been in the Valley, I just actually counted it up the other day, it's going to be 20 years in December, which is a frightening statistic <laughs> when I think about it, but actually uh, it's amazing how much has changed during that time too. It's many, many different waves of innovation, um, many lessons learned, and uh, uh, some observations on what's changed about building a company in the sort of uh, Web 2.0 era, for lack of a better descriptor, and, and what hasn't changed. Um, so just remarking on some of my own experiences and uh, observations along the way. So let me uh, talk a little about kind of my background. Um, I was raised in the Bay Area. I grew up in Berkeley. Um, I was actually a girl geek. I was entering science fairs all the time when I was a kid. I just loved cool stuff and uh, gravitated towards it. And I was fortunate enough to live in Berkeley and to be able to go up to the Lawrence Hall of Science regularly. That's where I spent many, many hours as a kid playing on the computers. <clears throat> and actually, they had a program back then called ELIZA, which, as it turned out, this was in the 70s. Um, that's when I was a kid, frightening as that is. Um, probably many of you weren't even born then. Um, but back in the 70s, there was a computer program called ELIZA, which many of you probably are familiar with if you studied AI, taken a class on AI. That was one of the first seminal artificial intelligence programs. And uh, ELIZA was running on the computers at the Lawrence Hall of Science and was kind of a, an online psychologist, psychiatrist. And uh, I loved to have conversations with ELIZA, who would ask annoying questions and, and, uh, and basically trick her into the computer, into acting like a computer, going into an infinite loop, and uh, puzzling out how it was that you were able to, to create a software program that could actually reason like a human being, but only to a certain point, and, and then pondering the limitations of that. that. That was really my first exposure to computers. And so it was a very positive experience. It wasn't scary or uh, um, daunting in any way. It was intriguing. It, it, it uh, raised my curiosity and really was, I think, the driver for me pursuing later on in my studies, computer science as a focus. So um, I got a degree actually in biophysics, as Tina mentioned, from UC Berkeley in 84. Uh, I had an interest in a variety of different sciences, physical, biological, um, computer science, and so I hadn't really quite found my focus. But about the time I became a, a sophomore, I actually took my first computer science class at Cal and, and had a great teacher, and uh, it was that experience that really made me start to focus more and more on computer science as I went. And I actually started teaching computer programming up at the Lawrence Hall of Science to kids and adults at that time, so it was kind of nice to go back and, and be able to, to, to be a teacher myself and work with the kids. Well, I graduated in biophysics, uh, but by then I decided computer science was really where I wanted to focus. I went up to the University of Washington and took a few classes for, basically took the equivalent of a bachelor's degree in computer science over the course of a year. 
the course, basic coursework. And then came down to the valley in 1985 and got my first job at a company called IntelliCorp. And IntelliCorp was one of the first AI companies. This is when AI was really hot. In fact, it was founded by a Stanford professor, Edward Feigenbaum. And uh, IntelliCorp's products were expert systems, expert system building tools, actually, helping companies create expert systems that would uh, help automate processes internally within their organization or help them deliver new kinds of applications to their customers. It was very experimental at that time, but there was, there was enough uh, meat to it that companies were actually experimenting, beginning to buy these systems and, and build some prototype expert systems uh, with the software. But I learned a lot during that experience, too. Um, I learned how easy it is to be early in a market. And when you see the potential, uh, when it's clear that there's a need you know, in, the, in the marketplace, uh, when you've got the technology and you've got a lot of smart people, uh, but the hard part is making sure all the infrastructure is ready for that company or that idea. And the problem with AI back in the mid-'80s was the infrastructure, basically expensive uh, machines, expensive computers, upwards of $30,000 and more, Symbolics machines, Xerox machines, just weren't, uh, weren't cheap enough to really propel this, this uh, market forward. And the software was also very expensive and, and pretty complicated to use. So while there were a lot of prototype systems that were developed using AI, it didn't really become mainstream until really just the last decade or so. And now AI is everywhere. Nobody really calls it AI. Um, we see it in uh, logistics systems. We see it in fuzzy logic in washing machines, um, determining temperature, uh, and so forth. It's everywhere. But we just don't think of it as much as we did before as sort of a, a unique um, sort of industry sector. So first lesson learned was oftentimes you can be certain about the potential of a technology, but it takes a long time for the market to ultimately catch up because there, there are other pieces that need to be in place. But I met a lot of very smart people at IntelliCorp. It was actually one of those companies that ends up having an alumnus that, or alumni organization, in essence, uh, of people that go on and do very interesting things later. For example, one of, one of our team members went on and, and was part of the Newton team. Um, ultimately started her own software company, uh, which she sold to Mercury and, and many other examples, too. So uh, from there, I actually left IntelliCorp in 1989 and joined Sun Microsystems. Sun was starting to experiment uh, and move into the area of AI and really develop a, a software business. It had been a hardware company historically, um, but was building a software, a significant software business, and AI was a, an important component of that. So I came on board in support, and that's what I was doing, by the way, at IntelliCorp. I was in technical support, which was a great place to be because I had responsibility for understanding how to apply the technology, and I could really see how it was being used and the challenges in using it in the real world. Um, at Sun, I moved from support into product management and became the product manager for C++. I, I transitioned from the AI to software development tools. And uh, actually, Eric Schmidt was heading up this organization. Eric is now the CEO of, uh, of Google. So uh, a lot of people in the Valley here were part of that, uh, that software unit at the time. John Fiber, who he was also part of um, that business unit at Sun, went on to more Davidow and, and many others. Um, the product manager job turned out to be a great role because it was kind of like being a, a CEO but you were responsible for the product, not for a company. But you had 
a wide variety of responsibilities, everything from helping engineering define the features and functions of the software itself to the, the marketing of it, the branding, the positioning, the messaging, the licensing, to business development relationships, partnerships in the industry. And, and that's where I really started to see what it takes to take a technology from uh, just the raw bits to actually a, a marketable, successful product and all the moving parts involved in that. Sun was a great proving ground for that. Sun is a great company and had uh, very, very smart people in it. It was also an environment where it was sink or swim. So I, I didn't have any formal training in this. I didn't have a business degree. Um, I was a little worried about moving from sort of the more of the technology side to the marketing side, but realized that's that intersection of marrying the, the technology to a business need was probably about the most interesting place to be. So I got over that pretty fast. And I had to learn. So I came up the curve um, really by, by, by example, by seeing what other people were doing um, and by starting to form kind of a network of, of smart people that I could ask questions of. And that became a repeated pattern throughout my subsequent years. Uh, along the line, along the way at Sun, I found out about a secret project uh, back in 1993. And uh, I was now the product manager of an object-oriented object building tool. Uh, and I found out about a project inside of Sun called Oak. And Oak was a spin-off project. It was actually a stealth project that Scott McNeely and Bill Joy and uh, a few of the, the core executive team at Sun had had funded uh, to take a technology that was designed for a future networked world and allow those engineers to run with it and see what they could build. Um, and they had built a prototype that showed what this technology was capable of. It was a language runtime um, that was revolutionary. And I came from the world of C++, so I knew the difference between uh, you know, C++ and sort of traditional programming languages and, and this. Um, Oak was based on, actually, C++, Objective-C, Smalltalk, uh, and many existing programming languages, but it added a lot of new capabilities, security, uh, the ability to, to scale potentially to millions of endpoints, um, size was very compact, uh, a lot of capabilities that made it a much better programming language for what these engineers were envisioning. James Gosling and, and a team of brilliant engineers were envisioning this future networked world. Nobody knew how that would came, come about, but they had built a language uh, and a language runtime to, to basically deliver services in the future uh, that could, could uh, meet the needs. When I found out about the project, I also found out they needed a product manager, which was great. Um, and I was looking for a new challenge. So I joined the team as a product manager of Oak. And uh, we first were aiming it at the PDA market, then the set-top box market. This was back in, again, 93. So these were immature industries still. Uh, all the kinks hadn't been worked out. The infrastructure wasn't in place. And I started thinking back to my days at IntelliCorp, um, realizing that a $20,000 set-top box probably wasn't going to ignite a market um, because Silicon, Val uh, Silicon Graphics actually was one of the firms, for example, that was making these set-top boxes. They weren't ready for mass market at that point. Um, and the trials that were being launched, the uh, interactive television trials, uh, Huge amounts of money, a lot of press and publicity around uh, these efforts, but it was just simply too early. And so we started looking around for other ways to take this technology, this language and language runtime, and launch it. Our goal was ubiquity. We, we knew we had a very powerful technology. Um, this team had, had built a phenomenal product, 
and we just needed a way to introduce it to the market. And along around that time, Mosaic was created, and uh, a couple of members of the team found it, realized this is the perfect vehicle on which to introduce Oak. Uh, and so we got the blessing from Scott and uh, management team at Sun to basically create an interactive browser, the world's first interactive browser in this programming language, and then actually give the language away, publish the spec, um, make it freely available for anyone to use and download, and, uh, and see what would happen. And that's what we did in the spring of, uh, actually, it was a fall of, of uh, 1995, 1994, rather, that we started this effort. In the spring of 95, we actually released it. And uh, first, quietly, and we had some friends and companies we had been working with who developed little applications in this, in this programming language that, uh, for example, would show an animation in a web page for the first time, or you could move a mouse over the, the image of a human body and see MRI images uh, appearing as slices, cross-sections. And this was very, very powerful, seeing it for the first time, because up till then, web pages could only display static text. And, and when people saw this for the first time, um, we were all blown away. When I saw what these guys had developed for the first time, it, it blew me away. And we started to realize the potential of, of the web, um, and not only this programming language, Oak, but also the web. We renamed it Java. We launched it in the spring of 95, and really, literally overnight, it became uh, a, a sensation. And it's really because of the developers. The developers discovered it, downloaded it, built the applets, and, and, um, and people who saw what was, what was possible with the web got very, very excited. Part of it was also timing. Um, that was the, the era of Windows 95. There's a huge launch that Microsoft was doing at the time, and I, I think a perception that Microsoft had sort of won the platform wars, and suddenly here was uh, potentially a curve that was thrown in. And uh, so the press also was, was, was fascinated with the potential of Java. So a lot of things went into um, you know, making Java a success, but at the heart of it, it was, it was a great technology. It was built right from the ground up by a very talented team, and then developers took it and ran with it and made it the success that it is today. Um, Sun did a great job, and I think Scott and Bill and that team were very visionary in, in giving this project a chance, and, uh, and the results uh, I'm sure all of you are familiar with. <coughs> so um, that effort was privileged to be part of. I also met uh, one of the most talented teams that I ever have come across in Silicon Valley, and that's been sort of when I look back at what I've done over the last 20 years and what's been the guiding principle. It's, I want to work on cool stuff with smart people. And, uh, you know, back to IntelliCorp days, that, that basically was the formula. And so in 1995, I started talking with some of my teammates, uh, three of my fellow uh, teammates on the Java project, and we realized this is a great time to start a company. If there ever was a time to start a company, this is it. And it was the birth of, basically, the web and um, a whole new set of businesses and opportunities was starting to emerge. Netscape had just been founded, Mosaic Communications it was called uh, back then. And so we decided to go out and start a company that we actually uh, really thought carefully about the product and the business first before just rushing out to do it. We wanted to make sure we had a viable idea. Um, and we actually also met with some of the smartest people we knew, Andy Bechtelsheim and other people who gave us great input and, and advice at that time about how to go out and, and actually do this. So we founded Marimba at the beginning of 1996, myself, Arthur Van Hoff, Sammy Shio, and Jonathan Payne. And um, <clears throat> our vision was 
that Java was great as a, you know, showing the first example of it, applets in a, in a browser, the idea of click and run simplicity of accessing software that you didn't have to, you know, worry about the underlying operating system or the infrastructure. But Java was capable of much more powerful client-rich applications and the combination of both, the click and run simplicity and the, the power of having a client, a rich client, and the ability to constantly keep that up to date remotely, uh, that was something we knew that companies needed and wanted as they started to build internet-aware applications and, and deploy to their customers. It was a whole new set of requirements around distributing software suddenly because it wasn't just sending software down the hall. It was you have to distribute software to millions of endpoints, potentially, outside the firewall, uh, deal with security issues, deal with net network interrupts, uh, deal with different platform support, mobile devices, disconnected use. None of that existed before the web. So existing technologies for deploying and managing software from Tivoli and CA and others were designed for a previous era, the, the previous era. So that's basically the market we entered. We started a company that was designed to deliver software as a service. Um, that concept was new, and it was this was a difficult kind of message to communicate. We actually got lumped into a space called Push. Some of me, you may have heard of Push. It was very big back in about 19... 97 or so, <clears throat> there was a company called Pointcast that was launched and that they were doing something actually quite revolutionary at the time. They showed that the web was not just about clicking and waiting and launch and, and basically downloading. It could actually be used to, 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 to push or deliver proactively content um, information to you. So they had created a screensaver application that would push sports scores and news headlines, very flashy graphics, um, the images were, you know, captivating. And the idea that the web could be used for this was, again, revolutionary. So that became suddenly anointed a category, uh, largely by the technology press, and then we became part of that category. Uh, we were pushing software. We were enabling software to be pushed. Um, and it, what, what then emerged was an excitement around push. This is going to be the next thing. Kiss your browser goodbye. And then a huge letdown almost immediately after that because it didn't happen. Um, Pointcast, for example, was difficult to use. It would, for, for at least the CIO, clog networks, wasn't really delivering a business value that could support a company at that time. Again, great idea, brilliant, but ahead of its time. And so the whole category sort of uh, became then, had a black eye and uh, was considered not ready for prime time. So interesting to see these technology waves. Just like AI, AI was very hot in the 80s, then it was nowhere. Um, push was very hot, then it was, then suddenly it was anointed. It was, it was unanointed. Um, but meanwhile, technology continues and innovation continues. And what happened was we actually had companies that really needed this technology. Um, big banks, telecommunications companies, manufacturing companies that were uh, trying to and spending a lot of money sending software around their organization and delivering applications outside the firewall and spending a lot of money, uh, a lot of overhead doing that. So we built uh, a profitable business. We went from uh, basically $10 million in the first year to $44 million run rate and profitability uh, by, by 2000. We went public in 1999. And this was a very frenzied time. Um, and we were in the spotlight as a company because four of us had left the Java team um, the press became very excited with this, and of course Silicon Valley was kind of the toast of, of the world at that time. We were the new Hollywood. 
So it was interesting building a company in the, in the glare of that spotlight, but we were determined as a founding team to build something of value, to deliver a real, uh, to re deliver real value to customers and build a substantial business um, and, and basically shut out all of the noise around us. And we did that. We, we brought on a great team, and it was all about the team from the beginning. It's not just about your founders. We had a f fantastic founding team, but the people then that you bring on in the first waves. Um, we managed to recruit a, a top-notch team and, and build a very successful company and learn a lot of lessons along the way. So in uh, basically fast-forwarding from 99 when we went public, we sold the company in 2004 to BMC, a very successful acquisition. BMC is a company that competes with Tivoli and CA in the systems management space. And by this time, <clears throat> by last year, the idea of software as a service was no longer foreign. The idea of self-managing systems uh, was, was not strange anymore. And there were companies also like Blade Logic, uh, Mark Andreessen's company, Opsware, uh, that were actually competitors of ours. So there was a sector now that had emerged during the time that we were building Marimba. But we were early. We were, in essence, too early back in, in 1996. And uh, I remember thinking, okay, I'm, I'm starting to learn this lesson now several times over, and it's becoming a theme. Um, and that, that lesson is it's very easy to be too early. Um, one of the hardest things about building a company in the technology world is realizing that it's not just about the technology. It's the infrastructure. It's is the market ready for this? And do you have the right partners lined up who can take this product to market? So there are a lot of other pieces that need to be in place, and the technology is, is only one of them. So um, after leaving Marimba uh, upon the acquisition, I was a CEO and then became the chairman and uh, basically was very actively involved in the company throughout. Um, but basically about 18 months ago, uh, I found myself thinking about what I was going to do next. And there was a lot of sort of doom and gloom in the industry, as, as many of you are probably aware. 2001, 2002, 2003, feeling that you know it was all over, software's dead, you were hearing all sorts of comments, kind of a conventional wisdom being thrown around. <clears throat> about the valley had lost its edge, uh, IT doesn't matter, um, you know, the list of, of phrases had, had goes on. But in fact, what was happening was, under the covers, enormous amounts of innovation. And uh, the groundwork had been laid, the infrastructure was there, broadband was penetrating everywhere. And now, the next phase was upon us, which was delivery of a new wave of services and applications on this infrastructure. So the investment had been made, Everything was in place. You have a whole valley full of experienced, uh, you know, time-hardened entrepreneurs and lots of capital on the sidelines and great infrastructure. Um, and, and that's a formula for a new wave of innovation and, and businesses to be built. And that's exactly what's been happening over the last three to four years since the bubble burst. This has been one of the best times to start a company. And, in fact, I spent that time, it was about six months uh, after leaving Marimba, before I joined SpikeSource, where I am now, um, where I spent most of my time with friends talking about business ideas or helping with businesses that they were in the process of building and launching. Um, so it, it was only a matter of when I would find the next one that really excited me and, and ignited my, my, my interest again. And the reason is clear. It's not that I didn't have anything to do or, you know, um, couldn't, couldn't find something else to occupy myself, it's that this, there's nothing more fun than being on a mission together with a team of people 
building something innovative, breaking new ground, and, and really making a difference in the world. Um, I mean, what could be more fun? Uh, not many things in life. And that's, that's one of the reasons why Silicon Valley is such a great place to, to build a career and, and just to live and, and, and be. So basically about five months into this, I got a call from Ray Lane, who was on my board at Marimba. Ray, Ray formerly was the president of Oracle and uh, now was a partner at Kleiner Perkins. And he told me about a company he'd been incubating since the spring of 2003 called SpikeSource. And when I went and met with him and met with the founding team, I realized this, this has all the ingredients that, that I'm looking for. Um, this company has brilliant founding team, a, a very powerful idea, uh, a market that seems ready, the timing felt right, uh, great backers, and, uh, and basically all the pieces that were assembled to build a substantial business. Um, and importantly, groundbreaking technology and a difficult problem to solve, a difficult computer science problem to solve. Um, so after sitting down with a team and spending a lot of time really looking at the new s this space, I decided to join as, as the CEO and came in in September of last year. Um, so I've been on board for a little over a year now. The company, as mentioned, is called SpikeSource. Uh, what, what makes what we do interesting is um, we're solving a real problem. So that was one of the lessons also I learned along the way. It's just got to be pain. If you're, if you're building something, either there's got to be an enormous untapped opportunity or else you're addressing some pain. Um, in this case, the pain is managing open source components, the complexity of the interoperability of open source components if you're using open source in a production environment. Um, what we do is we basically test and certify open source software. We're sort of an underwriter's labs for certifying open source interoperability. Um, the company's business is a subscription service. So this is the new model of building software company, software as a service. Um, we provide the product in the form of pre-configured open source stacks. We provide a choice of operating systems, uh, including Windows, by the way, all the major Linux variants, um, and also Windows, uh, databases, application servers, and then uh, over 100 components. So basically providing the best of both worlds, the choice of what to use, not being locked into one particular uh, distro application server or, or database, but also the support and integration and testing and maintenance that you expect in a commercial software stack. Um, so we deliver this in the form of pre-configured stacks, which are freely available to download from the website. And the company's business really is the subscription service and the support, the technical support that goes along with maintaining those stacks and keeping them up to date. This turns out to be a very big need in the enterprise, in any company that's using open source in a production environment probably has a team of people internally doing nothing all day, but scouring news groups and mailing lists and downloading patches and, and uh, testing against the entire build. Typically, an application is comprised not just of the four basic components, operating system, application server, database, and web server, but dozens of components. And every time one of those changes, there are dependencies that go across the entire stack which need to be tested. And then the patch needs to be delivered. And that's an endless process. So anyone who's managed any, any kind of open source infrastructure is aware of this. And it turns out to be a pretty big cost for companies that are using open source. Um, Steve Ballmer has, has, in fact, issued memos and created a whole website around uh, this called Get the Facts. Um, and, in other words, highlighting the problem of and the challenges and cost of, of managing open source in this sort of do-it-yourself way. So this is all about taking that do-it-yourself process off the hands of the companies, 
uh, and basically automating through testing and certifying through an automated test framework um, open source components and providing choice. Delivering business-ready open source infrastructure. That's the company's business. So it's a new mod market. It's a different way of building a software company. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk a little about today is you know, what's changed since, um, since building Marimba. Um, let me just give you a few more statistics on, on SpikeSource. We have about 45 people. We're based in, in Redwood City. We also have a team in India, uh, an offshore development team. And uh, they're doing, they're, they're innovating. They're not just a job shop. Um, and we're really focused on the process automation of managing open source software. We have customers that include software companies like Business Objects, some big banks, and, um, and also getting some interesting traction internationally. So this is one of the things that uh, is different about building a company in sort of Web 2.0. You go international much sooner because you have a distribution channel, which is the web, which allows you to touch many more potential customers. Um, I'm sure many of you are immersed with or certainly familiar with uh, open source, uh, but let me just mention a little bit about kind of what makes this an interesting area, why there's so much venture capital interest in it today. There's a whole kind of group of companies that have been funded over the last year or so, uh, 12 to 18 months, that have actually been acquiring customers at a quite a quite a fast rate. Companies like Sugar CRM, uh, Business Objects, uh, I'm sorry, uh, JBoss, Sugar CRM, JBoss. Uh, MySQL has been uh, around for several years, but very successfully gaining market share. Um, today, open source is about a $5 billion market. The open source software systems, applications, um, and basically anything that is open source related uh, is lumped into that. So this is IDC numbers, and it's projected to be about $17 million by 2009. Um, who knows whether that number is accurate, but the point is this is a real sector. The companies are investing in it and, and, and most importantly, buying. Um, you're also seeing entire nations mandating the use of open source software. So China, India, Brazil, parts of Europe, the UK, even in the United States, uh, the state of uh, uh, Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the state of Minnesota, uh, we're seeing uh, CIOs issue mandates, mandating the use of open source or have, you must have a good reason to use proprietary software uh, if you're not using open source software. And we've also seen over the last six to nine months the rise of the open source application market. Suddenly, seemingly out of nowhere, there's now companies in the area of customer relationship management, like Sugar CRM, um, business intelligence, Pentaho, um, document management, content management, systems management. And all of these companies are either taking existing open source projects, like uh, a company called Groundwork, which took Nagios, which is a system monitoring tool, and they've created a whole kind of open view or Tivoli-like systems management company out of this um, and some other add-ons. Or they're building from scratch a product like Sugar CRM. So this is a team that came out of a software company called Epiphany that decided the world needed uh, lower cost, high quality, good enough CRM. And in fact, the small to medium business market is a great target for this because they've been underserved for so long. You know, they've had to suffer with expensive software that either they couldn't afford or that was too expensive to um, and costly to implement and, and support. So the emergence of the open source application market is something that's, that's been fascinating to watch just really literally over the last six to nine, six to nine months. Um, why is open source so popular? Well, 
for companies, for enterprises, it totally changes the game. No, no longer are they under the thumb of the vendor. Um, we've been in a sort of dynamic in the software industry over the last 20 years as it, as it grew up uh, where we had fiefdoms and turf wars and companies that were battling over platforms. And the objective was, whether you were Microsoft or IBM or Oracle, to capture the customer, dominate the platform, and lock out the competition. And suddenly, open source gives customers an alternative. Uh, now, I should add that those companies are actively embracing and investing in open source because they see it, that the change as well and have been part of it, part of making it happen. But choice, the fact that vendor lock-in is really now a thing of the past, and the fact that increasingly, quality is as good as or better than commercial software. Um, and that's because you have hundreds of thousands of developers. I mean, in a typical project, you don't have hundreds of thousands, but you, you have dozens or hundreds of, of active participants, oftentimes, who are making that code better on a daily basis. So the turnaround for a patch for getting a bug fix goes from you know, nine months release cycle in the old days to literally overnight. Extremely attractive. And that's why big companies that you would expect to be you know, very conservative are actively investing in open source. And they want to work with commercial companies that can help support open source. So that's, that's why this is an interesting area for venture capitalists. Some people are saying there's, there's a bubble. There's now, this is the next bubble. Um, I, don't, I don't think we're in the bubble phase yet. I think we're, we're, we're in the, um, the mild frenzy phase, perhaps. Uh, but every company that I'm familiar with that's been funded actually has a, a viable business model. Now, will everyone succeed? No, um, but there's a defensible business model, and in many cases there are thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of users already um, that they are servicing. So um, open source, of course, is not limited to software. Open source is a phenomenon that is uh, pervading the music industry, uh, media, video, um, blogging, even DNA mapping. Um, the idea uh, that, that we can share knowledge, collaborate, open up interfaces, um, and innovate much more quickly is extremely powerful. And it's, it's an idea, I think, whose time has come. And the web really enabled this to happen. Open source is not a new thing. Richard Stallman and, uh, and many others pioneered the idea of opening software, sharing software, and, and collaborating because they saw the power of doing that and they saw the problems with lock-in lock and, and limiting um, application use to a particular platform. Uh, so it's not new. And in fact, in the early days of, of, of software, it was all free and open because the point was the focus was the hardware. So we've kind of come full circle in a way. Um, but uh, today, open source is, is not just about free software. It's actually about delivering significant value to businesses that want to pay for that. And that's what's changed. So what's next for SpikeSource? Um, we launched the product this past year. We are actively building a customer base and a, and a channel. Uh, and I'll talk a little about channels in a minute. We're working with these emerging ISVs, so companies like Sugar CRM. We've developed, for example, a, a Windows installer for Sugar CRM that takes the process of downloading Sugar and starting to use it from a day or longer, because you would have to configure all the different components that go with Sugar, to minutes. Um, so we're working with application vendors like Sugar CRM to, to basically empower them and enable them with the underlying infrastructure so they don't have to deal with that and they can have a dependable, reliable platform. And then uh, we're working actively with the open source community as well. 
Um, so our automated test framework is at the heart of our business. This is a, uh, a testing framework that right now is running 30,000 tests nightly across all the different components and operating systems I mentioned earlier. Uh, and um, the importance of that is not just automation, it's also working with the community. So we are actively partnering with leading open source projects. This is a two-way pipe, our test framework, so we encourage uh, developers to contribute tests to our framework. The way we got to 30,000 tests was not that we wrote 30,000 tests, it's that we incorporated them from the community of many different projects and, uh, and, and participants. So it's, it's a different way of building a company, actively engaging with, uh, with the community. And it's, in, in fact, one of the seven things that I want to talk about that have changed. When I think back to my experience building Marimba a decade ago to today, and let me just uh, go down that list. So what's, what's different? What's different about building a company in Web 2.0? First is the importance of working with the community, what I just mentioned. Um, the collective contribution and the, the, the value that that adds to a product or service. Companies like Amazon have demonstrated this. Their user reviews, of course, have really propelled the popularity of, of that service. They have a commodity. Open source software is a commodity. Um, many things in our world around us are commodities. What really adds the value is the service that's wrapped around that. And an increasingly important part of that service is engaging with the community. Uh, giving back. Um, and, and contributing back to the community as well. So, for example, we're publishing all of our test results. Uh, we're writing test coverage tools. We're figuring out ways that we can be of value, be of service. And Google is a great company, a great example of that, too. Their whole mantra is, is about being of service and, and not being evil uh, when, it comes, when it boils down to it. And, and it's a very, very wise strategy because that's how you, you really get, gain leverage um, and valuable content. Number two, more and more it's about the data. The data is the intel inside, in a sense. Um, less about IP, intellectual property, that you want to protect and lock down and patent. <clears throat> so, for example, uh, we are not uh, running around trying to snap up patents and, and use those as a, as a defense uh, mechanism. In the old days, many software companies and hardware companies actually pursue that as a strategy. Certainly, very large systems vendors and, and many software companies have big patent portfolios, Microsoft, IBM, just to name a couple, and it's a sizable business for them. But when you're starting a company these days, it's, it's not necessarily the number one thing you go out and do. The data is more and more important in, in businesses today. So, for example, the data that we have is the knowledge of what works with what, configuration information. Um, that knowledge base is being expanded on an ongoing basis. Every test we run adds valuable knowledge about system configuration. You know, we, we couldn't possibly write every test and anticipate every system configuration, every environment that, that that application might be run in. We need to aggregate that from the community, and once we have that, it expands the knowledge base. Google, same thing. Every time you do, you, you do a search, you're adding value in the form of knowledge that they're incorporating into making their search more efficient. Um, so, number two, data is increasingly where the IP is. Number three, process automation uh, is becoming more and more important. And that's just, that is a function of an industry that is beginning to mature and commoditize. So if you look back uh, at any industry that's become commoditized and mature, whether it's automobiles, uh, Ford figured this out back in the early part of the century, or PCs, Dell figured this out um, a few years ago, 
Anytime that you've got a flood of commodities, the value shifts to how you aggregate and distribute those commodities and the service you provide around that. And, um, and that's happening today with software. So again, back to kind of the core business model of SpikeSource um, and what makes this interesting, what we're doing is really process automation around uh, aggregating knowledge about what works with what, making that information easy to access, delivering it in the form of value, which is an ongoing updating and patch management service to companies that are running the software. Um, fourth, the shift to services. And I think you've probably heard about this if you've taken any any uh, course or worked in any company that is um, uh, involved in delivering software, but more and more the value is less about the software and more about how it's delivered and supported. Um, Salesforce.com, of course, is one of the companies that's really talked a lot about this and made this uh, a mantra for the kind of business that they're building. Um, but customers love it. Uh, the old days was you had a big lump of software, you basically dropped on a customer and the complexity was really in, on their hands, um, on their shoulders, in making it work within their environment. Or they would have to bring in expensive consultants, which you would, you would bill them for, or you know, they supported entire industries of, um, of IT consultants who would go in and implement these systems. Increasingly, the software is delivered as a service remotely, a hosted service. Um, investors love it too, by the way, because we're shifting from a model where all the revenues are up front to ongoing recurring revenues, uh, a monthly subscription service, uh, the idea of sort of antivirus, antivirus software style uh, business models where you're charging on an ongoing basis and you make the difference up in, in volume. Many more potential customers because the distribution channel of the web allows you to touch many more uh, users. So <clears throat> the idea of software as a service, software on demand, uh, is a model the whole software industry is shifting to, and we're seeing more examples of this every day, and, and the big software vendors are, are increasingly introducing services that, that provide this. Fifth difference is the value of the long tail. Uh, used to be you just focused on, you know, sort of the 80%, the 80-20 the, the rule, um, the 80% of, of the world that's whatever is most popular is where you focus. Um, the 20% you sort of ignore. More and more the value is in that additional population of users who may be using many different products. In the case of the world of open source, uh, there are over 100,000 projects on SourceForge, which is a, a place uh, where many of these projects are aggregated. Um, our value is, our value as a company, is our ability to support uh, the widest variety of open source components available. Instead of just supporting this stack and that's it, more and more companies are using new components every day and want the flexibility of incorporating them in their environment but still having commercial support around them. Uh, so that's the long tail. Clay Shirky is someone who you may, have, uh, you may read his blogs. He talks a lot about this. Um, the power curve. Uh, if you look at the, the blogosphere, the, the most popular blogs have you know, certainly a lot of attention, but if, the, if you look at the flat side of that curve, that's where the largest population of users is and what's driving uh, the growth of the blogosphere. More voices and more interest, thus, um, in the content that's being delivered. Uh, sixth big difference is the rise of good enough computing. Um, the, uh, the, the world that we've come from is one in which you built big, complicated systems stuffed with features and then, you know, figured that the 
customers would at least use a subset of those, so uh, you've, you've delivered the value. Uh, the fact is that that caused a lot of pain um, in, the, in, in many companies who were struggling to use very complicated, heavyweight, bloated software. And more and more, open source is attractive because it's stripped down. Uh, if you look at these applications like Sugar CRM and, and, uh, and others, they have a, a limited set of features, but they're basically most of the features you want to use. And in particular, for small to medium enterprises, for the application market, it's good enough. And for systems, like Linux itself, you can strip down the operating system to just the pieces, the components that you want and need, and not have to bother with everything else. Extremely attractive model. And uh, also kind of linked into that is the idea of the perpetual beta. Um, instead of these long release cycles, now today you release a, a component or a project, an application, and you're constantly updating it, constantly evolving it, aggregating input from the community, it gets better and better. Um, and it's essentially this ongoing beta, and Google's done a, a great job of pioneering that as well. And then finally, PR. Um, this, the seventh difference about building a software company, when I look back a decade ago, who mattered most were the industry analysts. You had to go to the Gartners and the Foresters and make sure that you talked to all the influencers, because they were the ones who were whispering in the customers' ears what was good um, and what was not. They still matter, but who matters more today, increasingly, is an influential blogger um, or a committer on an open source project. Um, someone whose voice really carries authority in the community because of what they've done, not because of the title or position that they, they carry. Um, so those are specific to software, uh, but markedly different environment for building companies today. And you can also start up a business much more cheaply, a tenth of the cost. Uh, customer reach is instantaneous. Building a global operation on day one is becoming more and more uh, a checklist item. In many companies in Silicon Valley, if you don't have some sort of offshore strategy, you don't even get funded, uh, or at least you, you get some, some pretty sharp questions from, from your investors. Um, what hasn't changed? The team. What matters more than anything are the people you start the company with and the team you build from there and the first few hires that you make, which are company-defining. Getting a channel up and running. Many people overlook this. Nothing could be more important after the team than finding the vehicle to deliver your product to market. Yes, the web is a great distribution channel, but there are also some, some very powerful partners that you can pair up with, and it's critical to get those relationships established right at the beginning if, if, you, if you can lock them down. The easiest mistake, as I mentioned earlier, is being too early. Um, and all ideas, all great ideas come back around. If they're not ready for prime time the first time, um, inevitably, the infrastructure catches up and they come back around. Push is back, by the way. It's just, it's called RSS, um, but it's back. Uh, focus on the pain. Solve somebody's problem. It sounds so simple, but so many people get caught up in the technology and the innovation and the invention uh, that they're building and what they want to do. They forget to focus on that. And then finally, sequencing is key. You want to do it all at once. You see all the different markets. For example, in our case, we could deliver to Fortune 10 companies and small to medium businesses and everybody in between. How do we do all of that at once? You have to sequence it. Um, you can't do it all at once, but you have to figure out where the leverage points are and then map it out. Uh, so let me stop there. Um, I could talk a lot, of, a lot more, but I want to make sure we at least have 10 minutes for questions. 
Um, let me just conclude by saying I know a lot of you are thinking about starting companies and maybe have got advice that uh, you should leave school immediately and go start a company. Um, maybe you haven't gotten that advice, but I'd say, first of all, this is a great time to start a company. It, it will also be a great time to start a company three, five, 10, 20 years from now. So it's not so much about going out and doing it now. It's about finding the right people to do it with and the right idea and then validating that as much as you can up front. Um, never stop learning. Build your own networks. Uh, and don't be afraid to go and ask people who've done it before because no matter what, someone's already done it before, likely. Um, and the best, the best learning is experience. And never give up. Failure is the best lesson. Sounds trite, but when I go hire people, if they've gone through a failed startup before, it's actually, as long as they weren't the cause of the failed startup, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a plus um, because they've gone through an experience that you just can't get anywhere else uh, the hard way. So I'm going to stop right there. And uh, any questions from anybody here or elsewhere? Yes. Why? Why is it so important not to be evil in our business? Um, it's because our business is dependent on the development of, in part, in the, in the development efforts of many, many developer software programmers. Um, we are, in, in, in essence, becoming part of that community. We need to be part of the fabric of that community, and that means not only taking, but giving back. Um, so that's one reason. The second reason is if, if you are evil, if you, you know, either are uh, dishonest in your business practices, don't treat your customers well, you don't get a second chance. And in this age of transparency and instant information, your reputation matters more than ever as an individual and as a company. That's why. Yes? Okay, uh, good question. The so first one was how long did it take before Java was profitable at Sun? Um, I actually left before Java became profitable, so I, wouldn't, I don't know the answer to that, and I'm not sure how you would really define that. Um, Java certainly drove a lot of hardware sales and services revenue for Sun, um, just as open source has done for IBM and HP and others. Um, so certainly it's had a lot to do with the growth of Sun um, over the last decade or so, but I couldn't answer you the, profitable, the profitability question. Um, second question you asked was about licenses and how do we, SpikeSource, deal with all the plethora of open source licenses. Uh, we, we are actually not in the business of dealing with that. We help provide information about license, software licenses and guidance to customers, but more, than, more importantly, we partner with companies that are providing services uh, such as Black Duck and Palomita and others. These are companies that help, help reduce the risk of IP um, litigation or IP um, concerns around using software licenses. Uh, there are over 53 different software, open source software licenses. Um, we use the open source license for our own software. We aggregate and manage components that use a variety of those 53 licenses. Um, but our business is not in managing the IP side of that. We, inter we, we interoperate with all the projects that, that, that use the different licenses, and then we partner with companies that help businesses make sense of 
what to do and how to use the, the different software licenses. Yes. Okay, so a lot of businesses are thinking about today open sourcing their proprietary software. Um, it's a trend you're starting to see, and in fact, just this week, uh, Computer Associates spun off the Ingress uh, project and formed a, a, a company around it. Um, that used to be a proprietary piece of software, obviously, and so more and more that's happening. I'd say the, the rationale or decision around whether to do that or not. First of all, why are you? Why would you want to open source this software if you're interested in license revenues? Uh, unless you've got a big support business and infrastructure you've already built up around supporting the open source project, uh, it's probably not wise. But if that software can help leverage another product, the sales of, for example, a good example is a company called Digium um, that was in the, the PBX uh, device business, and they were competing against some very large companies, and decided to, open, to build an, and then open source their own VoIP PBX software product. That's driven hardware sales for them and made them a much more successful company. So you got to figure out what's what's the core, as they say, you know, this is the, the, the sort of core versus context um, topic and what's 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 important, what's critical to your business and what's supporting it and enabling that. Um, so if the open source supports and enables your core business, that's probably the right decision. Other questions? Yes. Many of those companies uh, have specific software, open software, like Google or Shibashiana, and the same of that. So what, for my particular Shibashiana, maybe there's some software itself is for marketing. What is the core competence for SpikeSource? Yeah, uh, good question. What's the core competence for SpikeSource? It is our automated test framework. And our founder, Morgan Powell, um, back in the spring of 2003, set out to build this thing, which had never been built before, which is a software testing framework, test and build framework, that could literally run hundreds of thousands of tests across hundreds of different components. Um, that's what we do. And, and that's back to the core of our business is really about process automation around aggregating, testing, and supporting many, many different combinations of open source components. And that, by the way, is uh, that innovation and Mergen Powell himself, the founder, um, were, the, were the compelling reasons, along with uh, Ray Lane and the backing of the company, um, that led me to come to SpikeSource. Because if, if there wasn't an interesting computer science problem that the team had made significant prog progress in solving, it wouldn't have been interesting to me. Um, actually, we're using a lot of open source testing tools in our open source in, a, in our framework. Um, we run it as a service today. So we don't, we're not distributing it as an, a discrete piece of software. So it itself really is open source, but it's not, we're not distributing it. It's, it's made up of open source projects and, and other stuff we've added. Other, yes? So what, what are the enterprise software opportunities going forward? Um, the enterprise software market has changed dramatically, as I mentioned. So more and more the opportunities are in providing uh, solving a business problem and providing that in the form of a service. Um, I'd say the small to medium market, small to medium business market, is one that is untapped. Uh, open source is rushing to, to flood that vacuum, and that's why 
sugar CRM and other applications are beginning to get so much steam, even though they've only been around, you know, less than a year. Um, and delivering that software in the form of a service, because the small to medium business market typically doesn't have a large IT staff on board, you know, can't afford to manage and service the software themselves. Um, so that's one area. Um, there, there will always be interesting software problems to solve. So all of the talk in the last few years about software is dead, enterprise software is no longer an interesting space, I think is, uh, is, is been overblown. But what's changed is how you build these businesses. Software prices have come down dramatically, and the business is more about subscriptions, um, delivering the support and services around the software. Yes? Yes, uh, this has been a very germane and very relevant talk. I really appreciate it. And I'd like to ask you your advice and your comments on kind of a slightly different era. I'm with a nonprofit startup right now. It's only about two years old. It's called SciArc. It was um, with a mission to, uh, to use a kind of high-definition wages and technology for a rural heritage site. About building a nonprofit or about hmm. yeah that's interesting um, there's a, there's actually a company called Salem Radio Labs that's just coming to mind because they've they've developed some software internally that they've now open sourced and made available uh, widely to the community they're they're in another sector but the reason I mention it is that one of the ways that they've gained uh, support and, and help from the outside and, in fact, uh, potentially um, even some, some sources of revenue is because they've developed some software which they then open sourced and gained a community around it. Um, so if you're doing development work and there's something, some element of what you're doing that you think could be more widely used, uh, some community that needs that, and you have the ability to help launch that, such a community and support around it, that's a great way to get, you know, basically help um, and, and, you know, momentum around what you're already building internally and which, which you couldn't staff yourself. Um, that's just one idea. I'm not an expert in nonprofits, <laughs> but I've seen a, a few lately uh, make great use of open source software, and I would encourage you to, to investigate that. Um, on behalf of uh, BASIS and STVP, um, we would like to thank uh, Kim Polese for joining us today.